Security can be a lonely, lonely business. But once in a while, two players find each other and they make it happen. Here at Pwned, we want to help them to understand, is it right or is it just wrong? Welcome to Right Swipes. All right. Swipes. You know what, Jack, the um the beginning of the swipes episodes crack me up, man. You nailed that intro. Every time I hear it, it makes me makes me smile. It's a good one. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Speaking of swipes, another another week gone by where a lot of activity, but nothing so significant that I feel like is um worthy about talking about that singular thing. Yeah, it, it sort of has that uh, high school dance feel to it. There's uh, a rather meat market aspect to it just by the sheer volume of hooking up that's happening. Mm-hmm. But most of it, aside from some of those <laughs> those love matches we've talked about in the past few of Swipes episodes, just really not that interesting. You know, just sort of like, meh. It's interesting. We just, we're just looking... Um, Holly Studwell, our favorite McDubswell, had forwarded along to us an article which talked a little bit about the sheer volume of deals that we've seen in, and this was for March of 2022. There was better than a deal a day. It was mm. 40 days. It was like a deluge, an antediluvian, a Noah's Ark, 40 days and 40 nights of deals. But no, it was 30 days and 40 <laughs> deals. So it was a lot of them. I thought it'd be, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about that? about this meat market aspect to what's happening in the cybersecurity industry, because that's a lot of deals. Yeah. So on a previous slide episode, so we, um, we talked about a, um, a busy Q1 mm. of this calendar year, and perhaps what that could indicate for the remainder of this calendar year, which was voluminous, right? But we also said at the we were recording, I said, you know, there's still uh, still deals coming in here as, as the quarter wraps up. So we have... Um, there was 430 cybersecurity-related mergers and acquisitions that were announced in 2021. The number of deals announced in the first two months of 2022 has been roughly the same as last year, which indicates there could be well over 400 deals in this year as well. I feel like this is the cybersecurity swipes goes to Vegas, right? There's a lot of matches happening. There's a lot of people headed off to that tiny little chapel. There's a lot of activity. You know what I'm finding interesting in looking back at the, <laughs> at the, at the March data? I just, I, just, I, just, I just had the best visual. Oh, man, what a, what a great image you painted. You know, I just well, thought of, it just flashed in my brain all the things that happen before you go to the chapel. It's all the bad decisions you know, you drank too much, you gambled too much. Next thing you know, there's more bad decisions about going to the chapel. And here we are. <laughs> right, right on. Well, and also I think it, it sort of speaks, honestly, it speaks to sort of what we see in that March data that Holly shared with us, right? So if you're looking through it, you know that Google did not take Mandiant to the Elvis Chapel, right? They rented out a big place and they had all their friends and family. And that was a big love match. Right, that everybody was sort of into. And there was a couple of those larger deals that happened in March. But most of these are pretty much that the gal from over there and the guy from over there ran into each other at Caesars and said, hey, why not? Right. And, and I'm sure more thought went into it than that. But it is it is much more of this 
integration of lesser knowns, right? To try to maybe, who knows, increase revenue, increase market share, increase uh, value proposition, who knows. But a lot of them were not the, the kind of match that would get a lot of press or a lot of play or would make a lot of sense to people outside, you know, the very inside baseball community, cybersecurity. So I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Some of these are rough. <laughs> Just kind of thumbing down through the list. They're not ones that I would have put together, but I mean, who, who knows the, the motivation behind it? And I have to start from the place, like there's kind of sound strategy behind all these. Let me ask you this, like how many of these do you think exist? Like this deal existed or happened because there was market pressure and feeling like you need to do something different or drastic to kind of shake it up in order to just keep pace with an accelerated and over-invested market. Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of that. I think that some of these companies who are not easily recognizable on the left-hand side of the deal, which is sort of the acquirer, right? And the people on the right side of the deal, right, who were acquired. I think that if you read through them, in some cases, to your point in market position, they needed to do more than they were doing, but were never going to do it organically, right? Mm -hmm. And some of the companies who had a smaller value proposition, more of a feature than a product set on the right-hand side, needed to find a home for the good thing that they had built and the limited number of customers they were able to acquire. And so you take those two needs, one, I need to grow in an inorganic way, or two, I need to grow, period, or I'm just going to turn into a lifestyle company or die. You throw those two things together. And so I think that there is a pressure on them, one to survive, one to grow, and both are going to have to do it inorganically, right? Because the inorganic path isn't open to them, given the complexity of the market today. I'd also say that what I find interesting about the reporting on the acquisition strategies is that there's a sprinkling of PE firms, you know, equity firms in here as well, right? Where it is investors picking up some of these smaller companies. Yeah. So I think that there is definitely a pressure on them to create, you know, some total greater than the whole kind of deal with the roll-up strategies. And so they'll always be looking around, you know, for either distressed assets or companies that are looking for a way to grow differently. And so I see them participating here as well. And I think that the volume of deals that they're doing in the marketplace is really changing things away uh, around as well. It used to just be, you know, a couple of the bigger firms, Tomo Bravo, uh, KKR, et cetera, they, they maybe do some investments in the security space for a larger play. But now I think we're seeing a lot of the mid-tier players getting involved at a high level cybersecurity as well, as they witness the success that some other PE firms have had and want to demonstrate it themselves. So yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of pressure on these acquirers to do something, whether they're, they're an investor, whether they're trying for some inorganic growth play. Yeah. yeah, it sure seems that way. It's kind of thumbing down through the list. These two that actually stood out to me, TA Associates acquiring majority stake in Veracode, which I think we could, we could probably do an entire, uh, entire shizzle whole episode on that one. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and that's fun too, right? Because that's going to be that's crowded house because Tomo Bravo's in there as well, right? So you get TA and Tomo Bravo both in Veracode, which has been around for a very, 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 very long time. Uh, yeah, good work by Chris Weisopel and the gang, you know, maintaining that value proposition for the last twenty years. Yep. The other one that catches my eye and thumb down through this list is um, Liberty Strategic Capital acquiring Zimperium. Mm -hmm. Looks like Zimperium was acquired for roughly $525 million by a private equity firm, which was founded by Steve Munchen. Mm -hmm. So that's our former former Treasury Secretary. Yep, yep. Done correctly, uh, Zimperium can kind of sort out a couple platform-related 
things, uh, primarily around um, privacy of mobile devices, and they can develop a solution that you know encourages a level of privacy, but also a level of security. I'm curious if uh, Zimperium can use some of those dollars and pivot to kind of solve some of the mobile device security challenges that I don't think people have really been able to solve yet. Yeah. And, and Zimperium hasn't done uh, a ton of funding, right? So they're just on a little look. They, they've only done like 72 million in raises, right? So, and they haven't taken a raise since 2018. I wonder, you know, if this is a strategy on the part of Liberty to take what is basically a good company that's been around for 10 or 12 years and maybe use that as sort of the anchor tenant of their own uh, sort of roll up your strategy, either, you know, in the mobile space to make it more secure or in the security space to make it more applicable to mobile. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Yeah. Cause that wasn't, that wasn't the typical sort of overvalued, overfunded, oh my God, I got to find somebody to buy me kind of deal. Right. They, they, they seem, they seem to have managed their capital pretty well over the course of time. Yep. yep. There's another one in here that uh, we talked about a little bit right before the show that the audience may be interested in. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, RSA, the conference, is not RSA, the company, right? And it turns out that another private equity firm, Crosspoint Capital Partners, uh, has picked up a big stake in the conference, which I find really interesting considering the point mm. in time we find ourselves in, right? Uh, I'm not sure, maybe distressed asset because post-COVID, nobody wants to go to the Moscone Center pre-COVID the last few years. Yeah, not so much either, but um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, like, like, it's like, to me, it's like, it's like green eggs and ham. I don't, I, I didn't like it before. I don't like it after. <laughs> I just don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So, but I find that really, really interesting, right? Cause that's, it's like a second level indicator, right? You've got a smart group of folks at a private equity firm picking up a, a big interest in an organization which does nothing but security conferences to bring together the thousands of security companies struggling to find their way and trying to match them up with customers who no longer go there, but to talk to one another and network and what have you. Really, really interesting. I would love to have been in the room to understand what the partners at Crosspoint were thinking when they said, RSA conference, big trade show, oversized, having a difficult time in the space they're in, but the security industry is growing. I think we make a play because I think there's going to be a lot of money there. Or maybe they're finding a new way to monetize, you know, the community that finds itself rotating around RSA. I don't really know, but I find it really, really interesting. And also people who listen to the show that, you know, to know that RSA conference is not RSA, I think is an interesting juxtaposition of what RSA started as. Because I remember going up to Knob Hill in San Francisco, I think it was the Fairmont Hotel, right? And basically folding tables to talk about crypto. And talk about how you got people to think more about cybersecurity at a time when it was really friggin' hard, right? And uh, Jim Bidzos standing at the lectern talking about this new thing, cybersecurity. That's, you know, 30 years ago-ish, more, less, something like that, 25, 30 years ago. Um, and it was just a zoo. And now it's this massive thing, you know, for, for all the, the security vendors. So really interesting for me, at least, just uh, as, as a side note, it'll be interesting to see where that goes and how RC conference changes as a result. Yeah, I was in the camp that I thought the RSA conference was RSA. I was totally surprised when you told me, <laughs> told me otherwise. You know, a conference that big, owned by an equity company, naturally brings me to some like interesting conclusions that I'm not sure I totally want to talk about because <laughs> there, uh, there, there's a lot of opinions based on it. But um. It's definitely an interesting thing. And it seems to me like you know, it really starts to shine a light onto the emphasis on like product marketing 
with the RSA conference and specifically saying like, now that I know that, I can see more of a need for the B-sides of the world. And I can totally understand why a secondary market of B-sides and whatever con exists, you know, asterisk con, <laughs> asterisk has like a, a wild card, right? Because otherwise you get larger organizations with all the funding in the world and you got the man telling you what you should and you shouldn't be paying attention to based on who can afford to go. Right on. Right on. And, and for those B-sides audiences, you know, and I know the team created them to be a really open community. You wonder if they begin to see some pressure, right? Because RSA sort of started out that same way. So did DEF CON, right? Black Hat. And these things became highly commercial ventures over the course of time with more interest. It will be interesting to see what this thing turns into because I hadn't really thought about it that way, but you're right. This is almost as though they were purchasing a marketing arm for cybersecurity. Yeah. Yeah, that was the investment. We're going to invest in the marketing of cybersecurity, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. And if you get a lot of companies with, um, you know, expected to spend a lot of marketing dollars, uh, mm -hmm. you can kind of charge what you want, you know, to, yep. to get there. And, you know, the thing about the RSA conference is kind of like the haves and the haves nots. You know, yep. it's kind of unfortunate, but oh well, it's the way of the world. <laughs> so, you know, as, as we think about this from a swipes perspective, right? I think that, you know, we've talked about the bigger deals and their own love match ratings. You can go back through the earlier episodes and listen. If I look at the other, you know, 37 of these that occur, my guess is that they're going to be together for some time, right? There mm -hmm. seem to be a lot of sort of peer level relationships or medium dollar private equity investments that are, they're going to have a long lived relationship. I'm not sure if it's always going to be a honeymoon, right? I'm not sure there's going to be a lot of jumping around in joy, but it feels as though a lot of these matches were meant to solve to your earlier question, a relatively basic question of growth or marketability or just survival of the company. So maybe what we're seeing is uh, a consolidation, not a traditional consolidation where people are building into platforms you know, to create broader product sets, but a consolidation driven by a need to either add more value or to find a way to a larger entity that'll keep you alive. Yeah. Jack, let me, let me ask you this. So you're my, you're, you're my finance guy. You're the person I go to for uh, finance interpretations on series and all that goodness. In the industry today, there's giant funds that have been established with limited partners who have put in a ton of cash and who are expecting a return. This list here of 40 or so mergers and acquisitions. I agree with your with what you said earlier that these seem to be more of like a mid-market type thing. There's nothing like really big dollars about any one of these. In your opinion, what pressure does this put on to the larger VCs or the larger equity firms that have dollars on the sidelines that are waiting to be put to work? I think that a lot of these companies that we see in these relationships in this particular episode find themselves there because they're no longer going to get a ticket to the dance from the big kids, right? If I think about those organizations you described, the major venture firms, uh, even the major PE firms, they're not interested in investing in a company that's going to find itself go from 10 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue or from you know, from zero and they hope to get to a market share, you know, which is relatively small and a 200 million revenue number. 
they're looking to make bets on companies that will require them to invest hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of time so that when the payback happens, it can almost remunerate the entire fund, right, off a single investment. But once you get some of these companies that have been around for three, four, five, seven years, they're still modest in the revenues. They're still not making money. There isn't a path to accelerated growth because really they built a cool feature, not really a new kind of product or a new kind of company. There is nowhere for them to go. The big players can't afford the time with them. You know, we've had this discussion, I think, in an earlier episode. If I'm a member, if I'm a partner, an investment partner at one of the larger firms, I've got to put, you know, three, four hundred million dollars to work, right, over the course of a, of a fund's lifetime or of a couple of funds lifetime. If I'm dealing out of a couple of different funds, I can't sit on 30 boards and have anything like a meaningful contribution to make to them. And so if I've got to put, you know, three hundred million dollars to work and I want to put 30 or 40 in each one of these companies, then I can handle maybe 10 companies. And if the firm's expectation is I'm going to put that money into companies who can return like the whole value of the firm over the course of time, man, that's, that is, I'm not going to bother investing in a C round of 15 million to a company that feels that they could hit product market fit soon or that hopes in some point in time, they'll, they'll find another thing that they can add. And so I think that maybe some of what we see is not pressure on the larger firms, but pressure caused by the larger firms because of their lack of ability to scale in terms of the number of investments they make per, you know, in terms of total companies in a way that you wouldn't expect. Because you hear the numbers, right? Hey, it's a $2 billion fund. Oh my God, that's like 200 companies. No, that $2 billion fund still has seven partners who are doing the investments out of it. So if I'm doing $2 billion across seven investors, they both have to find you know enough companies to invest a bunch of really big dollars into, and that's going to be a much smaller number. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. All right. All right. Well, somebody out there, make a love match. Give us a big one to talk about. Give us something super interesting. Um, Otherwise, we're going to come back to you next month. And it was 36 deals in February. It's 40 deals in March. And we're going to come back to you with the groundbreaking news that it's 41 deals in April. So we'll see. (laughs) All right. All right, man. These are fun. I like doing these. If you need uh, cybersecurity help, uh, you can reach us at pwn.newharborsecurity.com and we'll get you in the next one. <laughs>